Welcome back to the All Outdoors Photography Podcast, where we share experiences out in the field and educate others through landscapes, wildlife, macro, and more with photographers from around the world. Today's episode, we have Ian Plant on the show. He's a full-time nature and landscape photographer from Minnesota. And Ian has authored countless ebooks, uh, led photo tours, and taught online classes. So welcome, Ian. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and dive right into a question here. Uh, tell us about the moment when you realized photography is what you wanted to make a career out of. Uh, well, yeah, that moment came almost 20 years ago. I've been a full-time pro now for that long. And uh, the moment came after my first year of law school. I took a summer job with a law firm in New York City, thought very much that I wanted to continue my legal education and then become a full-time lawyer. And at the end of the summer, this is the first time in my life I'd ever made any real money, I bought a camera. And very quickly, I realized I had made a huge $100,000 mistake. On the, that's the cost of my legal education. <laughs> so I was hooked right away on photography. Absolutely loved it. And so probably within a few months, I realized that it was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And uh, it took me a while. I had to finish up law school. And then I had to work as a lawyer for eight years to pay off my law school debt. Uh, but once that got cleared away... I started thinking about how miserable I was as a lawyer, how happy I was when I wasn't lawyering, when I was out taking photos. And so after eight years as a lawyer, I came home one day and told my wife, I've had it. I just put in my two weeks notice. I quit. And her reaction was, wait a minute, you were supposed to be my sugar daddy. <laughs> so she so, didn't take it that well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She was very supportive, so it actually worked out just fine. But I, I quit, and I became a full. I just kind of dove right in, plunged right into the profession of being a full time professional photographer, and I've never looked back. It's been the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I think that's just amazing how you're able to know so quickly that that was like the thing for you. Um, I'm curious, what was like that first like subject you were shooting with your camera that got you so interested? Well, so when I first got the camera, you know, I'd always been interested in the outdoors. Uh, growing up, I did a lot of hiking and backpacking and rock climbing and all sorts of outdoor adventure. And so originally I bought the camera for the purpose of just recording my experiences when I was out and about in the wilderness. And I just very quickly got hooked on it. I, I mean, it was just... I don't know. I've I've had a lot of hobbies in my life and most of my hobbies have lasted for like one or two really intense months. And uh just ask uh some of my older friends about my bonsai tree phase. And uh uh you know, it turns out that bonsai trees take a long time to grow and that's a really long-term commitment and I got bored after about 2 months of that. Uh so <laughs> all these other hobbies I've taken up in my life just didn't last long, but photography was different. There was just something about it that I connected to. I'm not exactly sure what it was. I'm not artistically inclined. I am really terrible at drawing or painting or music. You know, I went through a heavy metal music phase and I was really bad at that. So everything artistic that I'd ever tried, I failed at miserably. But something about photography just clicked with me and I was hooked right away and I recognized that I was hooked right away. And in the beginning, I was just playing around. I was just going out taking pictures, walking around New York City, doing, you know, some very rudimentary street photography or taking the camera along with me when I went backpacking in the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York or some of the other places I was visiting. And I, you know, I wasn't really photographing with intent. I wasn't really doing it, you know, with any sort of artistic purpose. I was just having fun with it. 
but it just became very obvious to me that it was something that I enjoyed doing. And I started dedicating more and more time to it. And before I knew it, it just had completely taken over my life. That's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting how like you kind of diversify and experiment, especially early on with like your subject matter, like you said, like hiking the Adirondacks or even shooting street photography too. Um, do you feel like that really kind of helps you know, like hone your process early on? Um, I, I would say probably not early on because after dabbling with a few different things, I very quickly decided that all I wanted to do was photograph the natural landscape. And so for a very long period of time, all of my photos were just landscapes. And I pretty much refused to photograph anything that had even the slightest hint of humanity in it. And so like if there was a little bit of a fence or something like that in the distance or a signpost, I didn't take a picture because I was very much a landscape purist. And I do think uh, conversely that being that focused on a single type of photography was very limiting. And as I progressed as an artist, I started once again dabbling into other types of photography. So first I started taking up wildlife. That was a very natural extension uh, of what I was doing already. Uh, but still I was kind of avoiding that hand of man. And then I dabbled in other areas. So I got industry photography a few years ago for the first time. And I really think that trying those different genres of photography was a really good thing for me artistically. Because I think that when you get out of your comfort zone, when you try something that maybe isn't really what you're good at or inclined at or something that is different from what you're doing, that's when you really learn how to see the world in a different way. It forces you to stretch and grow artistically. So I wish I had done more of that early on because I think I would have become a better artist faster, but I'm glad that I made the decision about, I don't know, 10 years ago to diversify and to embrace all different types of photography. I think the moment I realized that I, I wasn't just interested in taking photographs of pretty landscapes, I was really interested in just making really compelling photos, no matter what the subject was, uh, was when I was in a diner. I, I had been exploring uh, the Great Lakes and uh, taking a lot of natural landscape photos. And I'd stopped at this small diner in some small town and all the waitresses in the diner were dressed like they were in the 1950s. They had this whole 1950s diner theme going on. And they had this old mirror on the wall, one of those convex mirrors, you know, the type that you might see if you're pulling out of a parking garage so that you can see what's going on in the street outside of the garage. And they had that up on the wall in the diner and an ambulance went by and all three waitresses in this 1950s getup looked out the window to see what the ambulance was doing. And I was staring at this mirror that was hanging on the wall and all three of them were, you know, visible in the mirror. And I realized it was a, it was a really compelling moment. It would have made a great photograph if I had my camera with me. And that was when I realized that as a photographer, I was primarily interested in chasing moments, chasing those instances where the chaos of our world spontaneously converges in an artistically meaningful way. And to me, that's the essence of photography. That's what makes photography unique and different from other forms of art. You're out there waiting for these great things to happen so you can capture them with your camera, so you can capture that decisive moment as uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson called it. And so that was the moment that I realized I had to diversify and try photographing other things and chase the moment rather than being myopically focused on just photographing landscapes. 
So what are yeah. some of the common techniques you try to practice to capture that moment? Uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think patience, if, if you can call that a technique, uh, and persistence. These are very important for any type of photography, especially doing landscape photography, any outdoor photography. You're really dependent on the weather. The weather is going to dictate what the light looks like. Uh, the weather is going to uh, create shapes in the sky. So the clouds will create shapes that might interact with landforms that you're photographing. And you build your compositions working with all these shapes, the shapes in the landscape, the shapes in your foreground in a landscape photo, and then the shapes formed by the clouds in the sky. And all these shapes have to work together. So you have to be persistent you uh, definitely have to be patient because you're waiting for those moments. And so for landscape photography, for example, what I'll do is I'll go out and I'll spend hours scouting. I'll be exploring the landscape, uh, driving around as much as I can where there are roads, getting out uh, and putting boots on the ground where there are no roads and getting out there and finding those compelling visual ingredients, foreground and background that could make a really nice landscape photo. And once you find those ingredients, once you kind of find the rough outline, the sketch of what could be a compelling composition, then you've got to go back to that spot uh, at sunrise and at sunset in the twilight so that you get that really interesting light and color. And you've got to wait for the right weather to be present to give you that color and drama in the sky and to create those shapes that will interact with those landscape forms. So it all comes together in that moment. So you've got to do your research You've got to scout uh, and you've got to be patient and persistent. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and it seems like you've really thought this process out well um, and you've really got the formula down at this point. So, Well, one might argue that I think a little too much. Uh, you know, photography, uh, anything artistic requires a certain amount of intuition. And um, sometimes I feel like I'm overanalyzing things. Sometimes I think it's a good idea just to kind of get out there and go with the flow and not think about it too much. Yeah. Especially nowadays when you got like all these photo planning apps on like your phone and stuff, it just kind of gets a little too technical sometimes. And maybe it helps to kind of go on the inverse and do something that's a little more free flowing, so to speak. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's really important if you want to make uh, unique photos, because when, when you have a photo that is plan, meticulously researched, and then planned with the app or whatever, uh, I think, you know, that probably means you're shooting something that other people could find, uh, maybe something that other people have shot already. And so I like to just get out and explore kind of randomly sometimes, just kind of see what I see and react to it. So I think that's a really important part of making unique outdoor photographs. Sure. Yeah, now a big tagline with your work is dreamscapes. Uh, could you talk maybe about how that came to be? Uh, yeah, sure. That's uh, that's a name that I uh, used to use. I had a, uh, a blog on my website. I called it the Dreamscapes blog. And uh, I think originally that title came about, I was um, profiled by Outdoor Photographer Magazine a long time ago. And the title of the article was Dreamscapes, I believe. And I think... I had had a portfolio on my website that was called Dreamscapes that was uh, a collection of some of my more uh, surreal landscape images. And so I liked the article. I really liked the name. So I kind of ran with it for a while. I haven't really been actively using it that much in the past few years. But for a long time, that's kind of how I branded my, my photography collection. And the idea 
behind dreamscapes was to go out and find the things that other people weren't seeing. So trying to find some unique landscapes uh, and really just waiting for those magical moments, that convergence of cloud, weather, light, and land that I was talking about earlier. And also to kind of shoot on the edges of light, um, to wait for those really unique lighting moments, shooting well into the twilight and into the night, uh, you know, doing long exposures, getting uh, unique and interesting perspectives, all to create sort of a surreal landscape image and to really challenge the perception of viewers of the images and to present them something that they really have never seen before. So that was kind of the idea behind it. Yeah, and it's I think it's a big part of photography really is just like, you know, showing people and sharing, you know, things that they've never seen before. You know, that's I feel like that's one of the biggest compliments you can get with your work is like, I've never seen that sort of, you know, kind of frame or image like that before. And it kind of opens up their eyes to new things out in the, you know, in the environment. I, I think that's that's a very good observation. I mean, I think that's true of photography, that's true generally of art. An artist's job is to show people something that they haven't really seen before is to see something that other people aren't seeing. And so your job as a photographer is to see those things that other people might overlook or to see the world in a different way to kind of force viewers to see the world through your eyes and your perspective. But a photographer has to do more than just see what others aren't seeing. The photographer has to translate that experience to the viewer to make it relatable to them. So it, it is kind of a challenge. I like to joke around that that the best artists are seeing the things that everyone else isn't seeing. So therefore, you know, you're a great artist when no one else can understand what your work is about. But uh, if that's the case, then you're either uh, seeing on a much higher level than everyone else, or you're failing in that second part, which is to translate that experience and make it relatable to the viewer. So you got to see what they're not seeing, but you've got to invite them to see it as well. Right. Yeah. It's like an experience unique to your own, but then it's also got to have like a universal maybe message with it or something that people can kind of like grasp to, I guess. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And when you're out there in these scenes, you know, kind of capturing the dreamscapes, um, do you try to make it as natural as possible or we do like heavy um, compositing or post-processing and kind of what's your process with that? I am not a heavy post-processor. I'm not a compositor. So I'm, you know, I, I've always kind of viewed myself as a photographer, not a Photoshopper, uh, probably because I shot film for a, a while before switching to digital. I know a lot of the younger photographers who kind of came up in the digital age have less hangups about this than I do. So I kind of recognize that I'm the, uh, the dinosaur in the room, but uh, I did shoot film for a long time. And to me, photography was everything you did before you triggered the shutter, because in the days of color slide film, there was no post-processing. You know, you sent your film to a lab, the lab processed it, it according to a standard processing uh, formula, and you got a transparency back. That was what you sent out to clients. And so photography was everything you did before you triggered the shutter. And um, switching over to digital, kind of embracing this this brave new digital world has been uh, a little bit of a difficult process for me. So I, I kind of feel like I've got maybe one toe in the water, but that's about it. Uh, so my processing tends to be pretty light. Um, you know, I like to bring in a lot of contrast and color into my photographs uh, to kind of replicate that color slide film look that I that I grew up on photographically speaking, but I'm not trying to alter the fundamental reality of the scene as captured by the camera. So 
the the you know what I'm looking for, what I'm trying to do with my landscape photos is to do what I did when I shot film. Just work really, really hard to find compelling compositions and to really be persistent. Wait for that moment when you get that great light, that great color naturally. And uh, I'm not really spending that much time editing my photos in the digital darkroom. How often? How many minutes do you think you really spend on a typical image? Um, I, you know, it depends. I'm, I'm not a complete Luddite, you know, so I don't, uh, I don't like, uh, I'm not a purist. I'm not just, you know, taking a raw file and, you know, doing, you know, five or six adjustments and that's it. I, I do embrace a lot of the techniques that allow you to sort of get beyond the technical limitations of the camera system. So like exposure blending, instead of using graduated neutral density fillers, uh, filters to balance exposure, for example, or doing focus stacking just to get a sharper, cleaner image. And so when I'm incorporating those processes into my work, it might take a little bit longer to put an image together. You know, it might be 15 or 20 uh, minutes. But a lot of times, um, you know, if if it's really great in the field and, and you know, what I've captured, I'm happy with, I might be done with my edits in less than, you know, two or three minutes. So, um, you know, a raw file isn't an accurate representation of reality by its very nature. It lacks color and contrast. So you have to do some editing work to bring it to its fullest potential. But as I said, I'm not doing any editing to alter the fundamental reality of the scene as captured by the camera. I want to preserve that. I want to keep that tethered to reality. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I think that's a good way to handle it too. Cause you know, as you mentioned, raw files are just, very, they lack a lot of the elements that maybe even the back of your camera d demonstrates because it's just basically just taking the raw data. So that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed a lot of your work, it has this use of color that's very striking. Like you said, it's very surrealistic. Uh, it's got like lots of warm and cool colors. Um, do you just like set out forth to get those kind of shots or is it just something that just happens to be in a lot of landscapes you shoot? Uh, yeah, that's something that I actually strive for, that complementary color scheme where you're working with color opposites, so warm versus cool. And, you know, once again, this might be a holdover from my time shooting color slide film because uh, you would get that a lot with uh, slide film because it was balanced for daylight. And anytime you had light that was a different color, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> anytime that you had light that was a different color than that neutral daylight, you'd get a color shift with the film. And so, you know, for example, if you were photographing a scene in mixed light at sunset and there was sunset light on the landforms, uh, those would be glowing, you know, reddish yellow with color. Uh, anything that was in the shadows would be blue because that was being illuminated primarily from light coming from the blue sky above. And so you'd, you'd get that strong complementary color scheme. And I think this is something that a lot of people shooting digital don't realize you can get because they're working with the automatic white balance setting and your camera, when it sees a lot of that blue light might try to warm things up to get rid of it. And so you end up with a lot of, like I see this with digital images all the time that look a little bit too warm to me. So what I'm often doing is when I'm processing the photo, I might be taking the color temperature down. I might take that white balance setting and move it, closer to maybe the daylight setting or a little bit cooler. And that will preserve that complementary color scheme. That's going to reveal some of the blues in the landscape while you still got those warmer colors from the sunrise or sunset light. And so I'm actually looking to get those mix of colors and I'm making processing decisions that will best reveal those colors. 
And will you yeah, selectively so kind of apply those colors to different parts? Like maybe leave the sunset light um, at its like orange tints, but then add that blue into other parts of the scene? Yeah, you know, that, that is the one great thing about the digital darkroom is you've got a lot of flexibility to make local adjustments like that. So you can, it, you know, it's something that's called split toning. Um, and uh, I try not to do that too much. Um, I think you can very quickly get into processing style that makes things look really unnatural. <laughs> so I do try to I do try to bring out the vibrancy of the color, but I, I also don't want it to look just kind of crazy unrealistic. But yeah, you can definitely do that. I, I think if you're too, you know, if you delve too much into split toning though, you, you know, you you run the risk of of producing something that just kind of looks very, very fake. So if I do that sort of thing, that sort of local adjustments to the color, I do it with a very light touch so that it's not very obvious. Yeah, I think I think that's great. That's that's great methodology there. Yeah, I'd say with the color slide film background you have, I, I feel like it really gives you an edge almost to, you know, like you said, nowadays with digital photography being so prevalent and, you know, almost like the norm. Um, yeah, it's just a really interesting way, I guess, to really approach your editing and post-processing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, just a different way of of seeing the world. You know, uh, Fujichrome Velvia, which was the most common color slide film that was used by landscape photographers, just kind of had this unique color palette and contrast to it. And that's just kind of how I got used to seeing the world was the way that Fujichrome Velvia saw the world. And so I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing that I still do that to some extent that I've carried forth that tradition. It just is what it is. Um, but I also feel like I'm kind of going into the fight with one hand tied behind my back because a lot of the younger photographers who've never ever shot color slide film and who only know digital photography uh, they're much more likely to engage in really aggressive post-processing and, you know, the things you were talking about earlier, like uh, compositing and and some of this other stuff. And so, you know, it's, it's, I, I view it as being like a different form of art than what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing something that's more traditional photography and a lot of these uh, uh, photographers are something that's, that's more kind of like uh, computer graphics or photo art or whatever you want to call it. And it's, you know, it, it's its own art form. It can be very beautiful. It's just different than what I'm trying to do. Uh, but of course, on Instagram, it's all being judged the same. So there's uh, <laughs> plenty of uh, photographers out there with a lot of really neat looking images. Uh, and uh, my work is is probably not going to stand out as much compared to that uh, because I've got something that's a bit more subtle and a bit more uh, natural and true to the the realist, the realism of the moment. Uh, so, you know, there is that. I mean, I, part of me wishes that I were about, uh, for many reasons, 20 years younger, because I think I'd, uh, you know, in terms of the photography, I'd probably have a more open mind about some of this stuff. Yeah, definitely. It's all just about approach uh, overall to it, really. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we could dive into maybe some of the subject matter and compositions you use in your work. Um, so is there any like particular landscapes that you set out to you know, photograph? Is it anything like waterfalls or just, I don't know, mountains or stuff like that? And uh, what kind of composition techniques do you use? Uh, well, I, I like to photograph uh, everything uh, landscape wise. Um, so there's there's nothing in particular that I think I get more excited about than other things. Um, and, you know, I've been around the world, I've been to a lot of really beautiful landscapes and, you know, it can be thrilling photographing, you know, a, a giant mountain or something like that, something that's really charismatic and that stands up pretty. Uh, but I also get excited about 
photographing the more subtle landscapes, uh, the landscapes that are often overlooked by other landscape photographers. Uh, and I think it might actually be fair to say that I enjoy shooting those landscapes because I feel like when you go into those landscapes, you can find stuff that's more intensely personal. So, for example, one of my favorite landscape locations in the world is Badlands National Park in South Dakota. And I love it because there are no photo icons there. There are no places where you're going to find tripod holes. Uh, you'll see photographers there, uh, though most of the photographers who go to the park don't really go far from the park road. They're shooting from the park overlooks and they end up getting shots that I think all kind of look very similar to each other because if that's what you're doing, you're going to limit yourself. But for me, I love just getting out into the Badlands formations. And, uh, you know, they're not the most dramatic formations in the world. You know, I'm dealing with these claystone mounds that might be 200 feet tall at the highest. So they're not going to be as dramatic as like Mount Fitzroy in Patagonia or the Dolmites in Italy or something like that. Uh, but there just is a lot of incredible color and texture and detail in that landscape. And because there are no photo icons, anytime I go out there, I find shots that are unique, that are just unique to me. No one else is photographing these shots. And so I also think it's a great place to learn landscape composition uh, because you've got to work a little extra hard because there are no tripod holes. There's nothing really to go and copy. You've got to go out and find your own stuff. And so the techniques that I use there are the same techniques I use anywhere. And so there's a lot of compositional techniques. I could talk about composition for hours, days, you know, weeks, months, years. I've talked about it a lot. I've got a, a video course and ebook on it. Um, and it's it's something that I'm very passionate about. And I, I really think it's very important for anyone who's doing photography to, to learn how to master composition. Uh, so I, I'm not going to delve into that too deeply. I'll talk very generally about some of the techniques I use for landscape. And the most common technique I use, which is very common for landscape photography, is the near-far compositional style. So you find something that's close to you, and then you juxtapose that against the scenery that's in the background in a typically a wide-angle composition. And so in a place like the Badlands, I will start my scouting by looking for background scenery that I really like, that I'd like to include in my final composition. And once I've selected the background and I get in the right position relative to the background, I start looking for an interesting foreground. And a foreground is going to be the, the starting point for the viewer's journey into the composition. So it's it's what invites the viewer in. It, it's the visual anchor. It's the logical starting point for the viewer to explore your composition. So it should be something that's interesting. It should be something that's compelling. It should be something that leads the eye deeper into the visual design. So I spend a lot of time looking for a compelling foreground. And uh, the foreground doesn't have to be anything big. It doesn't have to be anything super dramatic. Usually it's something that's literally at your feet. So in, in the Badlands, for example, it's eroded and cracked mud. There's all this colorful cracked mud that's all over the place. And I will get low and close to those very tiny landscape features. You know, sometimes these cracked mud tiles are maybe an inch or two across in size. But if you get really low and close with a wide angle lens, you can dramatically alter the scale of those foreground objects. You can make them look a lot bigger in the composition. So having that big foreground that's in the face of the viewer and then having the perspective narrowing to the background. So that background feature, it just becomes 
the icing on the cake of your visual design. It's the cherry on top of the sundae, if you will. And so that is going to be smaller than the space occupied by the foreground. So that narrowing of perspective will help lead the viewer's eye deeper into the composition. It will give the composition that illusion of depth. And it's going to engage the viewer's interest in that juxtaposition of foreground and background gets the viewer's eye bouncing back and forth between those two elements. If you could work in a few extra layers, like having something in the middle ground and then having some clouds in the sky above the background, that will enhance the visual interest. So that's that's really kind of the general technique I use for landscape photography is looking for that that really compelling near far juxtaposition, trying to get that layering of visual elements from near ground to middle ground to background to sky that will just tie together the entire visual design uh, and engage the viewer's interest. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good way to do that. Um, and kind of with those large foregrounds, you know, distant backgrounds, um, many people, many beginners, especially run into focus issues. So will you focus stack that or do you focus in a specific place or how do you deal with that big discrepancy there? Yeah, you know, when you're working with those near far compositions, usually you have a wide angle lens. So that gives you some extra depth of field. Uh, to play with. Um, so typically you're using a small aperture like f11 or f16 to get everything in focus from near to far. And so if you're not doing focus stacking, you can do hyperfocal distance, which uh, I'm not going to get into it. It's very technical. But basically, if you focus on the closest thing in your composition, your focus is going to be too near. And that means stuff in the background will be out of focus. If you focus on the background, then the stuff that's closer to you is going to be out of focus. So you want to focus on a point that's somewhere in between your foreground and your background. Uh, and that point needs to be closer to the foreground than to the background. So the rule of thumb that I typically use is I estimate the distance from my lens to the immediate foreground in my composition. And then I double that distance and I focus at that point. So if my foreground is a clump of wildflowers that are four feet away from the lens, roughly, I'm looking to focus on a point that's about eight feet away, and then I'll stop down to that small aperture to extend that depth of field, that zone of apparent sharpness to my foreground and my background. So focus stacking is a technique that takes all of that guesswork out of it. So focus stacking, you have a scene set up, you don't alter the composition or the exposure. All you do is you take multiple shots of the same scene focusing at different points. So you'll focus on the foreground, maybe on the middle ground, background, and then you'll use a focus stacking program to merge those files together. And the program will select the sharpest parts of each image, and it will give you this blended image that's very sharp from near to far. So everything will be razor sharp in your final photograph. And it's a little bit better than doing the whole hyperfocal distance depth of field thing. Um, because you're just going to end up with a sharper image overall. And you can also do more extreme perspectives. So a lot of times I might be, I don't know, six or seven inches away from my foreground. I'm really close because I've got a small foreground and I'm trying to make it bigger in the final composition. And when you're trying to get everything in focus from six inches away to six miles away, uh, depth of field alone probably isn't sufficient. So focus stacking can allow you to shoot these more extreme perspectives and still get everything tack sharp in the final photo. Yeah, those are great techniques to use. Uh, so you, you'd recommend using focus stacking probably more? 
Uh, I do that now. I, you know, if the longest time I did hyperfocal dis distance, uh, everyone should know how to do it because there might be times when you can't do a focus stack. Like if you're working on the coast and you've, you know, you're trying to incorporate incoming or outgoing waves, like dynamic elements, it can be very difficult to focus stack that when you've got a lot of moving parts so that each image is different from the next. And so knowing how to do hyperfocal distance focusing is a really good idea. And also if you've got very fast, changing light and you don't have time to do focus stacking you'll want to do the old-fashioned way uh, but definitely when i can slow down and when i don't have a lot of movement from image to image that'll make it difficult to blend those images together later i will do focus stacking yeah definitely yeah and going back to the using the foreground element i feel like that's like something that a lot of early photographers don't really think about too much because you know they probably take shots that are a little more uh, kind of two-dimensional in feel, and they don't have that strong foreground element. Um, but it really just does elevate your overall compositional style too. And I think it's it's counterintuitive to people who are beginning with landscape because they think, well, I'm out here to photograph that beautiful landscape. I'm here to photograph the Grand Tetons. Why would I use a wide-angle lens and make those look small? And so they end up taking out their short telephoto and they take shots of the mountains. And I think that at some point as you're becoming better at photography, you look at those shots and realize they're not very interesting. They're kind of static. They seem very one-dimensional. And so even though it's counterintuitive, going wide and bringing in that foreground will make the shots more visually compelling. It'll add that three-dimensional feel that a photograph, you know, the photograph robs you of the third dimension that you can see with your eyes. You know, it takes away that depth. So you've got to create the illusion of depth in the two-dimensional final photograph that you're creating. And so having that foreground juxtapose against that background, having that narrowing of perspective, that big foreground and a smaller background, that's going to help recreate that feeling of depth. So, you know, it is counterintuitive, but definitely I think it's the way to go. You, you know, you want to avoid making your background too small. And so you've got to find the right focal length or position relative to your background and make sure it's sized appropriately in the final composition. But it's okay if the that beautiful scenery in the background isn't front and center. It's okay if it's not the most prominent thing in the composition, because once you start working in those foreground shapes and then bringing in shapes in the sky created by the clouds and all that color that you might get at sunrise or sunset, uh, the composition becomes more than just the scenery. It becomes the entire visual experience that you have when you're out there. And that's the best way to show it to the viewers by going wide and incorporating these other visual elements. And would you say that usually kind of the ultimate goal of your foreground itself is to kind of lead the eye up the frame towards the background? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a great way of putting it. If, if the foreground is not leading the eye to the background, if it's trapping the eye so that the eye doesn't want to go any further, or if it's you know, misdirecting the eye outside of the image frame or something like that, then it's not serving its its purpose. So it does have to kind of facilitate the viewer's journey. It doesn't have to point directly to the background. You don't need to have like a leading line that goes from foreground to background. Uh, you know, a foreground that kind of meanders through the composition, like maybe a foreground with an S curve or something like that, that that just kind of generally gets the eye moving around, but eventually points the eye to the background. That's the kind of foreground that you're looking for. Yeah, it's basically a place to have the viewer's eyes really just kind of move around the image and stay with it a little bit longer and, uh, you know, provide that depth of, you know, the whole image in the frame there. 
Yeah, and I think the idea is to have the foreground big enough that that's where the viewer starts, uh, but also having it be that big will draw the viewer back. So the viewer is gonna explore more of the composition, but if the foreground is big and bold and prominent enough, it's gonna bring the viewer back to that point and that's gonna start their visual journey all over again. And that's, that's how you engage their interest over time. You know, the goal of every photograph you make is just imagine someone buying a print of your photograph and hanging it on their office wall. And they go into that office every day. If after a year of staring at that photo, they look at it and say, wow, that's amazing. I still can't tear my eyes away from that. Then you know you've made a good composition. Yeah, for sure. Um, you touched upon it a little bit earlier about filters and neutral density filters. Um, do you use like any other kind of gear to really capture images or are you more like minimalist with you know, your setup? Yeah, I've gotten pretty minimalist. I'm not really using filters that often, if at all. So, uh, you know, it used to be that I'd use like a graduated neutral density filter to balance the exposure when you have that bright sky at sunrise or sunset and the landscapes in shadow. But now I do exposure blending uh, to achieve the same thing. And uh, neutral density filters are useful if you want to do long exposure effects. Um, not something that I do that often unless I'm shooting in low light. Uh, and kind of get those natural longer exposures. Uh, a polarizer filter is still a very useful filter uh, for removing glare and reflections. And it's especially useful when you're photographing waterfalls and streams. Uh, though, to be honest with you, there are a lot of times where I'm photographing a waterfall and I've forgotten my polarizer or I've dropped it and broken it. And I've done a lot of waterfall shooting without a polarizer and I think they look just fine. So uh, honestly, you know, if you wanted to, you could get by without using any filters. Of course, a tripod is an absolute essential uh, accessory when you're shooting landscapes because you're often shooting in low light. You often are trying to get uh, a lot of depth of field from near to far or your focus stacking or exposure blending. So you need that precise and stable platform for your camera. And a, an electronic shutter release can be very useful as well. So that's designed to minimize any sort of vibrations. When you trigger the shutter button, you're creating vibrations. And if you're doing a long exposure, that can soften your image. But it's also really useful if you're trying to time your exposures precisely. So a lot of times when you're shooting landscape, it, you know, you might be shooting a static landscape. So I will use my shutter button and the two second delay on the camera. So I press the shutter button, the two second delay, uh, you know, basically allows any vibrations to die down. So I get sharp images. But if I'm working on a dynamic environment, like on the coast, and I'm trying to time the shot when that perfect wave is coming in, that's going to create that shape, that's going to complete my composition, having that electronic shutter release so that you can get the shot exactly when you want and not worry about vibrations. That's something that's very, very useful. And just one more thought about the tripod. Uh, because a lot of landscape photography involves getting low and close to a foreground to make it look bigger, having a tripod that can go down pretty much to ground level is really useful. So I've got a tripod where I've removed the center column and the legs splay out. And so I can get it so that the tripod is pretty much at ground level. And so, of course, with the camera on top of the ball head, you're still you know, six or seven inches above the ground, you're not completely at ground level. Typically, you wouldn't want to get that low anyways, but getting down to like six or seven inches above the ground uh, is uh, very useful for a lot of landscape photography. Do you and try I, with kind of the, 
the heaviness of uh, equipment? Do you try to kind of minimize the the main camera and the lens to have kind of the lightest setup? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so my tripod is a carbon fiber tripod that takes out the weight. And um, I'm not using a super big, super heavy tripod. A lot of times when I'm leading photo workshops, my clients will show up with these monsters that weigh like 10 or 15 pounds. And they see my my tiny little tripod and they sort of laugh at me. But I I use it because it keeps the weight down. And when you're out there doing a lot of hiking, exploring the landscape, keeping the weight down, uh, will maximize your creativity because there's nothing worse than uh, just physically exhausting yourself when you're exploring the landscape. And then the moment's ready and you're just not creative at all because you're tired. Uh, and in terms of my lens kit, you know, I have one camera body with me. I might just bring one or two lenses. So it might be like my widest angle lens or a wide angle zoom. That might be all that I shoot with. Of course, I'm a wide angle junkie. I love wide angle shots, especially for landscape. I do wide angle with my wildlife all the time as well. And um, so I'm not really bringing the longer lenses because I just typically don't use them. But I think definitely you want to keep your kit as light as possible. And so, you know, a wide angle zoom and maybe a standard zoom and maybe like a lightweight short telephoto zoom on top of that if you want to do any landscape intimates or something like that. But, you know, if you've got more than three lenses in your landscape kit, then you probably have too many lenses. That's awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, wide angle wildlife photography, and that's that's something that I've tried a bit myself, and it's it's very challenging. So do you want to kind of go into some of your techniques for that? Uh, yeah. So um, if you're photographing, for example, predators, uh, getting close to them can be very, very difficult. I find that maybe putting like a, a raw steak in my pocket is a good way of luring them in. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I almost believe that too. Wide angle wildlife can be very, very challenging because, you know, most animals are skittish and they don't allow you to get that close. Uh, there are many places, though, where you can be around wildlife that are more or less habituated to people. And so, you know, for example, a lot of times you might go to a local park here in the United States, there might be a lot of birds there that just don't care about people walking around. They've gotten so used to people walking around on the boardwalks or whatever that you can actually get surprisingly close. Uh, and if you're like on safari in Africa or something like that, a lot of times you can get very close while you're in your safari vehicle to the animals because the animals, they don't care. Uh, they don't really, you know, when they see the safari vehicle, they're not really sure what it is, but they don't really register it as a threat or as potential prey. And so there's been times when I've been in Africa when I've been, you know, five, 10 feet away from a lion. Um, you know, you, I, I'm sure you've seen the famous photographs of the cheetahs that jump up on the the uh, the Land Rovers in uh, Kenya or Tanzania. Um, that you're not allowed to let that happen, by the way. The guides who let that happen get fined. <laughs> oh wow! But the animals, you know, they they're they're not threatened by the vehicles, and the cheetahs jump up on the vehicles because they just think of it as like a anteater hill. They they want to get a, uh, sorry, a termite mound. They want to get a higher perch so that they can look for prey. Um, and so, in a lot of places, you can get pretty close to the wildlife, uh, and that certainly helps when you're doing wide angle photography. Uh, but you don't necessarily have to be very close to do successful wide angle photography. Cause the, I think the whole idea behind doing wide angle wildlife photography is to tell more of a story of the environment and also to create uh, a more interesting composition. 
So in a lot of my wide angle wildlife work, the wildlife subject is actually relatively small in the composition. So a lot of times when I'm photographing those lions in Kenya or Tanzania or wherever in Africa, uh, you know, I might be close enough that I could actually fill the frame with the lion quite easily. Uh, I go very, very wide and end up with a very small lion. And the reason I do that is because I want to bring in the, the sky, for example. So I'm thinking like a landscape photographer. The lion really kind of becomes my foreground. And then everything else that's going on in the landscape and in the sky uh, is really telling the story. It's really making the visual design more interesting. So I think the key to successful wide-angle wildlife photography isn't necessarily getting up close and personal in your face with the wildlife. It's just being creative with the shapes, being creative with the composition and, and, you know, using light creatively. So when I'm shooting wide angle wildlife, a lot of times I'm thinking like a landscape photographer in terms of the color and the light and the weather. So I'm trying to bring in a colorful, dramatic, stormy sky, for example, in that wide angle composition. So it's really very similar to the techniques I'm using with landscape photography, but it's just about being creative with the shapes and with the composition uh, and creating a visual design where the wildlife is just part of the design. They're not necessarily the full subject. They're just part of the overall visual design. Yeah, I think, you know, like what you said earlier, too, is it's avoiding that static nature uh, that you can get from that traditional telephoto. Uh, but I think, you know, I don't know if you found this, too. You could you could even do kind of a more smaller kind of habitat shot with that longer lens. Have you experiment, experimented with that at all? Uh, I'm sure there's some, like I see a, I was scrolling through your Instagram, I see a polar bear. I'm, I'm sure you probably couldn't get wide angle on that, but you still were able to include some nice habitat. So do you, do you look for that when you have a telephoto? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it depends on how far away the animal is. It depends on, you know, what sort of focal range you have. Uh, but yeah, a lot of times... Uh, one thing I, I'm trying to avoid, and I think a lot of beginning wildlife photographers do this, is kind of like with landscape. They think that the wildlife is the subject. And when they see the wildlife, they zoom in as tight as they can and get that really tight portrait of their subject. And that's what I try to avoid doing. I'm trying to zoom out to provide context. And you can do that with your telephoto lenses if they're zoom lenses, or you can change your focal length uh, if you don't have zoom lenses. You know, you can do that with. Um, uh, pretty much any lens in your kit, you can just kind of step back or reframe the composition and take that wider view. It's all about telling the story of the wildlife. And sometimes the story is best told with that tight framing. Um, but a lot of times the story is told better by going wider, showing the environment, bringing in the shapes and the colors, and just striving to make an overall dynamic and compelling visual design. And so you just have to make a judgment call as to whether going tighter or, or taking a step back and providing some context is the better way to go. Yeah. And it's interesting how this like approach just drastically changes the, you know, the overall composition. Like it's almost like a photojournalistic image um, rather than something that's like you said, tight, tightly cropped uh, telephoto portrait. Um, do you ever make these shots with using like camera traps or any kind of like, do you use like a remote shutter when you take these images? Uh, no, I, I haven't really done much of that. I, you know, I've thought about experimenting with it. Uh, the one thing I don't like about using the, the like the camera traps or something like that is I, I kind of feel like uh, you're taking the you're taking the photographer out of the equation, or at least you know virtually all of the 
the photographer's uh, creativity out of the equation. I mean, it, don't get me wrong. Obviously, setting up the the camera in the camera trap and framing it correctly uh, that is going to take artistic skill. The photographer has got to think very critically about how they want to frame everything. But I kind of feel like I want to be behind the viewfinder. I want to be there seeing how the scene comes together in real time and then making the decision about when to trigger the shutter, when that magic of the moment is best revealed. So um, I probably should be experimenting more with these camera traps or some of these remote setups, but I just haven't really moved in that direction just because of the way I shoot and my personal photographic style. Yeah, so I'm moving gears here a little bit more. Um, you've done some with uh, Shutter Monkeys and PhotoMasters. Um, how have those collaborative experiences been for you? Uh, yeah, fantastic. I mean, I, I've done a lot of collaborative experience throughout the years, you know, like back in the days of dreamscapes, that was kind of a collaboration. I've worked with a lot of photographers and um, that, that collaboration project seems to constantly be evolving <laughs> and uh, changing names, but the idea pretty much stays the same. Uh, I like working with other photographers. I like presenting different points of view. Uh, we all see the world differently. And um, I think that, we all have our own unique talents as artists. So we've got strengths, we've got weaknesses. And so one thing that will make you a better photographer is to see how other people are seeing the world. And uh, I, I certainly don't think that anyone should try to copy the work of someone else. I mean, I know when you're just beginning photography, that's kind of what you do. You see work that you admire and you try to emulate it. And as you get better as an artist, as you progress, I think you're going to be, you know, generally more focused on finding your own unique spin on things. But it's a good idea to to work with other photographers, uh, not just just collaborating with them online, but actually getting out in the field with them, seeing how they're approaching things. Uh, you know, it can be challenging when you're when you're in the field with someone else because you can't always do what you want. It's kind of a compromise. Um, but it can also be very rewarding because you might be bouncing ideas off of one another. And, you know, sometimes that compromise might feel limiting. Other times, uh, working with someone else, you'll you'll just kind of discover that you had tunnel vision about something. And that collaborative process gets you out of your comfort zone, breaks you out of that tunnel vision and allows you to see something more creatively than you would have ever done if you had just been by yourself. So I definitely enjoy working with other people, collaborating with them. And, you know, part of my educational mission is to teach people uh, and inspire people in the art of photography. And doing it just by myself doesn't present the full picture. I want to bring in other voices so that uh, people who are learning from, uh, you know, for example, my PhotoMasters website, uh, they're getting different experiences, different voices, different points of view so that they can pick and choose what works best for them and grow as artists themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's like, we're all continuously learning as we go and, you know, what better way to learn from each other and thus, you know, learn and teach others as well. Yeah. That that's, I think that's a great way of putting it. Uh, you know, photography is a continuous process and it doesn't matter how good you get. You're, you've always got something to learn. You've always got uh, room for improvement. And so I view this as a lifelong project. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How easy was it um, kind of getting into video uh, coming from such a large photography background? 
Um, you know, I, I don't really think that I'm a, an expert in video at all, but I do think having that artistic background attracts very well. And so I uh, do a mix. Sometimes when I'm shooting my educational videos, I'll be self-shooting them. Uh, you know, so if I go on a trip with another photographer and we film a video, like when I went to uh, photograph the volcano in Iceland last year, I was with another photographer, a good friend of mine, Joseph Roybal, and we just took my GoPro and we filmed each other. Um, sometimes I work with a film crew, like a professional video crew. And when I'm working with the professional crew, it's it's kind of uh, really helpful for me to have that artistic background. So I can go to the crew and say, hey, what do you think about this angle or, you know, working in this light? And they might just be humoring me, but typically they're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try that. And it usually works out pretty well. So I found that it's facilitated working with people who are primarily focused on video. Uh, and of course, you know, I think that the, the experience would translate one way or the other, like the, like this one cameraman I work with, uh, he's, he's got a fantastic artistic vision with video and I bet he would be a great photographer if that's what he wanted to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's very similar. You know, it's got some critical differences, but when it comes down to it, you know, composition and light and everything still apply. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to me, both are fundamentally about capturing the moment, but you're right. It is different the way a photographer captures the moment and the way a videographer captures the moment, but really that's what we're both looking to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's awesome. You're able to tap into both sides of that. Yeah, definitely. And then a lot of people, you know, they learn best through video and explain it through that process. And a lot of times nowadays, they even say photographers need to dabble in video at the very least, too. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, as I said, anytime that you kind of cross over into other forms of art, I think that's a good thing for you artistically. So whether it's dabbling into other types of photography or dabbling into other kind of related visual arts, uh, I think that anything that forces you to see the world a little bit differently is going to improve the photography that you're doing. Uh, you've used blogging as well, I believe, to promote your photography. Uh, how's your experience with that been as well? Yes, yes, I do a lot of blogging or article writing. Um, it is, it's a great way to uh, promote your business as a photographer. Uh, I think there is a lot of demand for that sort of thing. I think there's a lot of people who want to learn more about photography and they want to get insights from uh, some of their favorite pro photographers. And so anything that you can do to let people basically crawl inside your brain uh, so that they can see what you're doing, see your process, I think is a good thing. So blogging was kind of what we all did, you know, a few years back. Uh, now that video has kind of grown, uh, that's become a, a much more direct experience. So, you know, when you're reading a blog, uh, you're, you're kind of just you know, you're, you're getting that word picture that's being painted for you, but watching someone do something in a video, actually seeing what they're doing and talking about it in real time, I think is a, is just kind of a, a more intense learning experience a more personal learning experience for people. So I think that, um, video probably is, uh, definitely something that I'll be doing more of in the future and probably less blogging. But, you know, the, the good thing about blogging is that you can sit down, you can think precisely about what you want to say and how you want to say it. Uh, when you're doing video or you're doing a podcast interview, you're kind of in the moment and uh, sometimes you're on fire, sometimes you're not. And so sometimes uh, I find myself talking and I have that out-of-body experience where I'm just kind of floating in the room watching my body talking and I'm wondering, what are you saying? And that's something you never have to worry about when you're blogging. 
Yeah, very good points with that. So as we wrap up the recording here, um, is there any like tips or takeaways you want to give to starting out photographers um, just in general? Yeah, you know, I just tell people that, um, you know, I talked about patience and persistence and and the third P is planning. So I talked about how important all of those things are to making great fo photographs. But there's a fourth P that I think ties it all together. And that is the most critical element that you can have as a photographer if you want to get better. And that's passion, loving what you do. And when you do it for a long time, it might be easy to get kind of stuck in a creative rut. I get into them all the time. And the best way that you can reignite your passion for photography is to just force yourself to do it. Immerse yourself in the photographic process. Even when you're not feeling creative, just get yourself out there and start taking photos. Because as soon as you get behind the lens, that's when your passion gets reignited. That's when your creativity begins to brew. And I think it's also not a, not only is it is it a good thing to do when you're in a creative rut, but just generally when you're making photos, you've got to be present. You've got to be in the moment. You've just really got to dive into what you're photographing. You've got to immerse yourself in that experience, whether it's the landscape, whether it's wildlife, whether it's travel photography or street photography. You, you've got to do more than just be someone watching from the sidelines. You need to be an active participant. And that's why, for example, with landscape, I love doing those wide angle compositions because it's so intimate, because you've got to get so close to that foreground. You really just have to dive into the landscape to make those kinds of photos. So I just strongly encourage everyone to embrace their passion for photography and to immerse themselves in it as much as possible. Just get behind the lens as much as possible. It's the best way to practice. It's the way you learn. And you've got to be present and in the moment. You've got to be thinking critically about what you're doing. And you've got to constantly analyze and reanalyze what you're doing if you want to get better. Uh, but you've got to make sure that you are just out there as much as possible behind the lens getting creative, making photographs. That's the best way to become a better photographer. Yeah, that is some great advice. Uh, and we really appreciate um, all the advice you've brought tonight. Uh, where's the best place for all the listeners to find out about your work, Ian? Well, definitely you can go visit my personal website, implant.com, or you can head on over to photomasters.com where I've got bunches of videos uh, featuring me and other photographers some of photo adventures to exciting photo destinations around the world, lots of great learning. Uh, and there is a lot of other material there that I think photographers would find very helpful. Awesome. Ian Plant, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Henry, Ryan, it's been a real pleasure and it's been a privilege to be on. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching the All Outdoors Photography Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the video version on YouTube as well. You can subscribe down below, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thank you.